and welcome back to the next episode of Tar Heel State of Mind. I'm joined by my host, Brad, Bradley, Bartledew, wherever you want to go with that. Uh, my other co-host, Nick, thank you guys for being here. Uh, as we mentioned in our first episode, this is a podcast made by and for Carolina fans. So uh, glad that they spend time listening every week. Uh, really thankful for that. Uh, super thankful for those guys. Thankful for all of our listeners at all times. And uh, I'll go ahead and kick it over to Nick. Uh, any thoughts, Nick? <sighs> So great day to be UNC Tar Heel. All right, boys. Let's talk some Carolina basketball. All right, who we got this week? Syracuse? Is Syracuse the only game on the slate for this evening? Yep. Yeah, so let's see. Played Syracuse this week. Uh, We know what we get when we play Syracuse. You're going to get a little bit of Virginia-style basketball. Not quite to the same extent as Virginia, but you're going to get the zone. Uh, I think that as a Carolina fan, we have been pretty spoiled because Roy was really good at chopping up the Syracuse zone, it seemed like. It seems like Hubert also has kind of uh, followed in foot there. I want to start by talking about the first half. I thought our ball movement in the first half was probably the best I've seen all season. Uh, Pete Nance was involved at the free throw line. So what did you guys see? What do you think about that? Yeah, I think we um, we definitely always know what we're getting when we play Syracuse. They're going to play their zone. Uh, they always have long guards. They've always got bigs that, that it can also extend. Uh, get in the passing lanes and make it difficult for us to score. But like you said, we definitely um, worked the ball inside. We had Pete, who was a good facilitator in the middle of that zone, and he found the open space. He got um, good looks to Armando on the baseline. He got good looks to our guards on the outside, and they knocked down shots tonight or that evening. So um, we definitely handled their zone really well. I was – pleasantly surprised i wish we would have you know kept up our play throughout the whole game we, we came out strong in the first five minutes of the game played really well kicked uh, punched them in the mouth and let them crawl back into the game which is what we typically do when we play teams so far this year we can start off really strong we have spurts of greatness and i wish we could see that throughout the whole game um so hopefully that's what we're working into Yeah, so before we go over to Nick, I actually want to pose a question to Nick that I've been thinking about. So in the past, you play Syracuse, you have someone who posts up at the free throw line, and that honestly is where all of your offense is going to be generated from, is getting the ball to the free throw line, because Syracuse, they don't. that's the one spot on the floor they don't guard. Uh, so in the past, I remember guys like Bryce Johnson have played that that role at the free throw line. Uh, last year, I think Brady Manick filled that role quite a bit. So this year we had Pete Nance fill that role of the free throw, line, free throw line to shoot, distribute, and figure out what to do with the offense. Nick, how do you think Pete did in that role? Well, overall, if you look at his stats, he put up 21 points, had our game-winning layup. Um, I think he did pretty well. Um but I think he was really streaky. I think um, there were some points in time where he made the right pass to get Armando an easy layup, and then also where he had a couple of these mid-range jumpers that he would miss, and we had, what, three or four empty possessions in a row that the ball went through him, but we didn't get anything out of it. Um, I feel like it was pretty pretty streaky, but at the end of the day, we got the win, so I was okay with it. Um, he definitely shows signs of greatness. Like, if you watch the whole game, you probably, at the end, if somebody said how many points did Pete have, you probably wouldn't have said 21 points. But I mean, he did. He was our leading scorer tonight, and he, you know, he did 
he did pretty well in my book, but definitely some room for improvement for sure. I think he made all the right passes. Um, I think some of the shots could have fallen that didn't fall other than that. There was definitely an opportunity for us. If he would have shot a little bit better, we could have easily won that game by 10 or 15 points. Yeah, I agree. I think that Pete's I think Pete's a good shooter. I think he's a good mid-range um, jump, jump shooter, but they just weren't falling for him consistently that night. I think he had, you know, three or four, uh, maybe five shots around the free throw line where they were wide open. And he's kind of got like a, a laser jump shot, right? There's no really arc on his shot. Um, so he doesn't really have a shooter's touch, I would say, um, like Brady does, like um, RJ and Caleb do. Because when he shoots, uh, he's you know, he's so, so tall anyways that his shot just goes directly at the basket. So if it's not spot on, it's not going in. So I, th- I think that's something that he needs to work on as far as his jump shot goes. I think a lot of it, more of his shots would fall if he got a little bit more arc into his shot. But he missed a couple bunnies. He missed a couple layups. Um, I think he should have had more points just due to the fact that all of his shots were pretty much wide open. I don't know what Pete did to deserve 40 minutes. He played off. He played the whole game. So I think I would have saw. I would have liked to see Leaky. Um, or even Tyler Nickel maybe in that middle middle spot to distribute the ball um, more than Pete. But, you know, we got the win, so happy with that. Just wish that um, Pete would have knocked down those open looks. Uh, like Nick said, we would have extended that game and, and made it not as close as it was at the end. I've got a question for you guys. Do you think this was our best ball movement game, or do you think this was our best – like, we had to move the ball well through the zone. Do you think their zone manipulated how well we moved it or vice versa? I would honestly say both. I think against Syracuse, you have to move the ball. So it was kind of a product of what we had to do in that game. And I think that that's a good thing going forward to play that zone where you just have to constantly move the basketball. In the first half, it seemed like we were getting open shot after open shot after open shot. And I don't really remember that previously in the season. Uh, I got to give Jim Beheim some credit. That guy can flat out coach that zone. So after halftime, they had made a few adjustments that were pretty obvious. And we did not get as many open shots. Uh, the shots were more contested. I think off the top of my head, Pete shot a majority of his free throws in the second half. Seemed like we shot some more free throws in the second half, uh, got to the rim a little bit better. The threes didn't fall as much for us. I think we only hit six. Yeah, six out of 16, 38%, not terrible. So we'll take that uh, percentage. But the one thing about Pete for me was that uh, I think the majority of his points came from the free throw line, right? So he was 6 of 17 from the field. So he hit, he had 8 of 10 from the free throw line, 8 points from the free throw line. Not super efficient, but again, kind of to Bradley's point, I don't think Leakey played in that middle part of the zone just because you don't have a shooting threat when when Leakey gets there. You're, like No one's going to have to step to that ever. So I think, in my opinion, that's why Hubert was hesitant to put Leakey there. I am fully with you though 100% that there's two players I really would have liked to see there uh, and that first would be Tyler Nickel and the second would be Jalen Washington so we know Jalen can shoot the ball especially that mid-range game so he only got six minutes wanted to see a little more Jalen a little less Pete but I mean we got a win walked out walked out of the building with a road win in the ACC which has been tough to come by this year I want to touch on the fact that I am the biggest uh, leaky fan 
but this was probably one of the worst games I have ever seen him play on the defensive end. He was getting freaking cooked by uh was it just Joe Girard? Yeah, Joe he was he was doing whatever he wanted to. Which I mean, Joe Girard I think averaged like thirty five points a game in high school and he's done about the he's done really well at Syracuse. So like he was definitely the guy that Leaky needed to guard. I think either he was having an off night or I don't know, but there was a couple of times where Leaky was getting lost. So um there was definitely a couple of times when Leaky maybe they made the wrong defensive player, like just wasn't closing out as much, or maybe uh, Gerard was just hitting his shots. Um, either way, it was definitely tough. Um, the game was closer than it should have been. But um, and even on the offensive end, Leaky usually can contribute a little bit. He only shot. He was over three from three, two for seven overall. Played thirty six minutes, um, four points, two rebounds, three assists. We didn't do terrible, but in my opinion, you know, Leaky. Leaky, his defensive prowess is what keeps him on the court for the majority of the game, and I think it kind of lacked in this one. But, I mean, Gerard did play out of his mind in the second half. He was doing really well, too. So, One thing that I'd also like to cover real fast, and I kind of want to pass this off to Bradley since Bradley loves RJ. If you look at the stat line, it doesn't look like RJ had a good game, but that the stat line never tells the whole story. Watching the game, it seemed like RJ was playing well. What did you see out of RJ Bradley, and do you think he played well, could have played better? What do you think about that? Uh, yeah, I want to talk about Leaky first because Nick is just talking about Leaky. I think that Leaky, if he's going to play 36 minutes, he has to contribute more on the offensive end. And Joe Girard is only 6'1", Leaky 6'9". He should not be getting cooked by a Leaky Black who's 6'9", and who's one of the best defenders in the ACC. I don't know what happened there. Joe was getting him from the three-point line. He was using high ball screens, getting around him, getting open um, 15-foot jump shots, and he was just doing whatever he wanted to Leaky. So um, I, I hope Leaky went back and watched the film so that doesn't happen again because there's good good guards in the ACC, and if they watch and, and see what Joe Girard did to Leaky, I hope that he doesn't make that a, a common theme. But Maybe it had to do with physics. Maybe. Maybe. Um, Let me just butt in here. My heart sank when Leaky left this planet on that pump fake for the Joe Girard's three, and we that was a tie ball game, right? When he did that, like he yeah, it was literally close. left the solar that system. That's like how a, high he jumped. It was like a minute and a half left in the game, and he he went for oh. the pump fake. Yeah, and usually Leaky doesn't yeah, do that. He stays so. grounded, and I don't know what I don't know what he was thinking in that play. But I've never. I can't remember another time I've ever seen Leaky do that, where he gets pumped that bad just for the wide open three. His defensive discipline is always on point, and I've never seen that before. But yeah, y'all keep going. Yeah. Anyway, back to RJ. I think it was just because he's he's on the court all the time. Again, our starters play heavy minutes. So he was only four for nine. He hit his first three and went over three over the next um, – over the the rest of the game. So nine points, five assists, six rebounds. So he was very active, I think, and that's why, um, you know, looking at the stat sheet, it doesn't tell the full story. But he also took a couple charges in the game that were critical. And he, he my, my man is out there sacrificing his body for this game and for this team. And that's why I love him so much is he does whatever it takes to win. He's a dog. So, um I haven't heard an official word, I don't think, about RJ, but I think he should be good to go um, Wednesday against Pitt. But he took some shot. He took took some shots in the game, and that shot to the face at the end was rough. Um, so hoping and praying he's okay. I think he is from what I'm seeing. But 
Um, I, I think that's that's what happened with RJ um, during during the Syracuse game. Nick, did you see anything else? Um, what? Yeah, one thing I want to touch on. You know, we've kind of been given Caleb Love a hard time, but I thought he played a very good game the other night. Um, he hit his first three threes in the first half, and they were probably his best three looks of the year. And I honestly thought that would, this was his like thirty point night. I mean, he shot, I think, three for five from three. He had 15 points and only shot four out of seven overall. So this was definitely, like, the best overall game in terms of, like, efficiency for him, I think. Um, But, I mean, I thought he played really well. I mean, he stayed on the floor. The one thing, the only gripe I have about this game with Caleb is I think he had two offensive fouls on the same exact move to the basket. And I think one of them was a little iffy with the with the offensive foul, but one of them was a charge. And so I think that play, that exact play where he had both of those charges, I have seen him do that. I mean, I think he had two in the Louisville game. He had two in the Syracuse game of like the same exact spot on the floor, same exact move. So I think that move has kind of been figured out by the other team. And I think, you know, if he can adapt and kind of get that ball out of his hands to someone else before he runs through the paint, I think it'd be, you know, it'd end up better. But that's the only gripe I have. I thought Caleb played really well, and I was happy to see him get a good efficient game in. I think the big thing for me would be Caleb played under control, and that is the Caleb that we're looking for. So the thing that really pops out to me about the game is Caleb scored 15 points on seven shots. That is elite efficiency. If you're scoring double the amount of points that you've scored on that you've taken shots, you're doing well. He only played 31 minutes right off of the top of my head. I think that's probably the least minutes he's played all year. Uh, It seems like Hubert, maybe we've turned a little bit of a corner with the efficiency, the bad shots, all of those things. Really happy with Caleb's performance that game. Uh, So yeah, I'm hoping that that's something that he can build on going forward and kind of keep that going. Yeah, do you think that Caleb is turning the corner, or do you think that just because we were playing a zone and we were getting wide open looks for him in the first half, uh, do you think that more had more to do with him being so efficient? Well, I think I'll... I think it's too early to tell. I think it's too early to tell. I think this was the first game I would like to see him play this next game coming up on Wednesday night to before I make a decision on that. I would like to see how he does in two back to back games. I feel like the zone slowed him down. So, therefore, he slowed down. I don't know if we would see that against a team that plays man-to-man. But I, I'm interested to see what it would be like on Wednesday. Well, and my thought is that, I again, this just goes back to Caleb playing under control. I'm glad that after he was hitting those three threes that he hit in the first half, that that didn't turn into 15 shots in the first half. And we've seen that before. He hits a couple shots, maybe doesn't hit a couple shots, and then by halftime you look at the – the box score and he's taken 12 13 14 shots and that that didn't happen and I thought that was huge I thought he deferred to his teammates he made some really nice passes to his teammates that is the Caleb love we can go on a run with so very happy with that performance hope that he can carry that over uh one other thing before we talk about the end of the game the substitution patterns every game have been really weird so coming into this game tremble and done we're getting lots of minutes and Come during the Syracuse game, they only got four and five minutes. Uh, Nickel got his 12 minutes. He played really well in the last game, so that was a good thing to see following up. Uh, what do you guys think about the substitution patterns and what we're kind of seeing as that the season progresses? Uh, I'm just glad Nickel got some burn. Um, I feel like he is, he is a 
pretty impactful on the defensive end. He has had a couple of good blocks in multiple games to kind of get the crowd into it. And and I, I don't know. I kind of I kind of like him on the defensive end. I mean, he he only gets two shots a game. He'll he'll hit one three, which he did in this game. Um, and then the other one was blocked by that guy who literally skied out to the corner to get a to get that block. So I mean, he was one for two. Um, I'm glad he got some good some good run in. Um, I still would like to see all three of them, Dud, Trimble, and um, Nickel, play about 15 to 20 minutes each and get those starter minutes down to like 28 apiece. Um, even Jalen Washington can come in and get some relief. I still think that's the that's the go to, especially getting into the later part of the season. But that's just what I think. I like the fact that Nickel plays that much. I feel like he helps out. He's probably a, he's a solid defensive defensive threat too. I mean, he has had some good playmate playmates on the end, so um, I think it's pretty good. Yeah, I think Nickel could be that three and D guy. Um, done maybe too. Uh, I don't I don't know exactly what Hubert's plan is with the rotation. Obviously, we've seen different guys get. Lots of minutes in different games, but it's never consistent. It seems like more of a matchup rotation. So for playing a team that likes to work the paint, we might see more Jalen Washington and maybe Don Dress Styles. If we're playing against a zone where we need to knock down some shots, then we'll have Tyler Nickel out there. Um, if you're playing against some a team that has a good backcourt, we might throw Seth Trimble in there to get a stop on the defensive end. So it's a good. I mean, it's a good idea in theory, but when you come down to it, you want guys with experience. You want guys who have experience in specific situations, in-game situations. If, if say, we're in, you know, the NCAA tournament in a, in a couple months, just like last year, we get into f- some foul trouble. You know, last year Brady Manick got ejected, uh, Caleb Love fouled out, and then then you see Puff Johnson and Dontrez Styles playing heavy minutes when they have an all-season. You know, you want to be in a situation where Dontre Styles and Puff Johnson or Tyler Nickel and Jalen Washington come in and they've been playing 12 to 15 minutes a game, so they have that game time experience already. But, you know, Hubert said in multiple interviews that you never know when your number is going to be called, but it's going to be called and you'll be ready when it does. So um, a few of these guys have bought into that and have been ready off the bench in, in several different games, but... It's not like a Roy Williams era anymore where Roy would just call in, you know, under 16-minute timeout. You know, Ed Davis is going in for, um, gosh, who was on that team? Whoever was on that team with Ed Davis. And Marvel Williams is coming in on the 05 team. Is that uh, Tyler Zeller? Maybe not. Some of those guys? Maybe, yeah, Tyler Zeller. Or or whoever, you know. Roy Williams had these patterns that he went with. So under 16-minute timeout or under 12-minute timeout, he's making these subs. Sometimes he'll go five for five. Um, But, you know, we're not seeing that this year or last year with Hubert. So he's got a different mentality. Um, I just hope it doesn't bite us down the road when we we need guys to play minutes off the bench and we're in those weird situations where we're in foul trouble or even in the next year or two when we need – um, those experienced guys, and we might not have them with, um, you know, Baycott potentially leaving, Leaky leaving, Caleb and RJ potentially leaving. leaving so, Agreed. And I did just go ahead and check. It was Tyler Zeller and Dion Thompson and John Henson. So that was the group back. That was 09-10. But, yeah, completely agree with you about substitution patterns. Let's move on to the end of the game. So I think that I can speak for a lot of UNC fans when we saw Girardi, Gerard, I think it's Gerard, hit that three. I 
I thought we were cooked, honestly. I, I got a bad feeling in the pit of my stomach when that happened. Uh, and then we kind of have an interesting thing happen where I think they score to go-ahead basket. Pete gets the ball back, comes down, gets fouled, has two free throws, and we're down by two. Misses the fir- Hits the first. Second is a miss, and then just pure chaos ensues. Like, bodies on the ground. Nobody knows where the ball is going to go. Our boy Gerard, who just tried to bury us on one end, he dives out of bounds. Number one rule of basketball, I haven't played basketball past, like, high school and ninth grade at, like, a Christian school. You cannot save the ball under your own basket, ever. So Pete gets the ball, goes up in midair, kind of flails a little bit. I get nervous, puts it back in, and we go up by one. What were you guys thinking during that? Me personally, uh, right play, right time. Um, you know, Gerard does the absolute unwritten rule. You do not throw the ball back in under your own basket. And, I mean, if you see Pete, he gets straight into position right where he needs to be. I mean, he throws it straight to him. I think it was good heads-up awareness by Pete, and I also think it was a very um, um, not enough self-awareness by Gerard. Um, there's definitely a perfect storm of us getting that basket. I mean, I think it, it turned out really well for us, but it definitely could have – been a disaster as well um you know that's just one of those things that the ball bounced our way that time and that's what we got out of it so i'm glad it happened yeah same and we just got lucky so and we i was i was thinking y'all better get back and you know get back on d and that's when rj i think took that hit to the face and they called a did they call a flagrant on that play i can't remember they might have called it called it a flagrant one yeah, they did because we got two got free, free throws. throws and yeah, ball. That kind of, that's how we won by that's four. Kind of how, yeah, that's kind of how we sealed the game. So I hate that. I, I don't. I don't know about the flagrant rule. It's so. It's so difficult to um, rule that a flagrant win was their intent. Maybe I, I don't know. It was more of a basketball play that you know he just raised his elbow a little too high and got already in the face. So it was definitely an offensive foul. Don't know if it was a flagrant one, but you know. Things happen, basketball plays happen, and they got to make a call one way or the other. But love that we won the game. Um, hate that we won it that specific way, but getting getting road game road game wins in the ACC. Nathan, I know you showed the um, the schedule and all the um, the standings the other day. It showed win loss record at home versus away, and lots of teams have taken L's at, at when they're playing, you know, away from home. So. Uh, glad to get an ACC win on the road. I think, too, all the offensive foul call is it's partially based on, like, the reaction of the player who is trying to draw the foul, where they're getting hit. Like, you know, anything above the head, anything on the head is going to be a flagrant foul. So that automatically means it's going to be an offense. Like, if they can't call it a, a blocking foul and a flagrant foul on the offensive player. So, like, I feel like a lot of these are – reacting reacting based on um based on that as well like just like the hard foul on smith from nc state like that was a basketball play the ejection came based on the outcome of the foul um and i feel like a lot of these flavor fouls are based on that which is kind of tricky because like you know you don't want you know the severity of the foul has to go with the severity of the call but sometimes it is missed but um yeah i feel like that one there was definitely an offensive foul and he got conked in the jaw like you said put his life on the line for the team at the end of the game so i think it was well well deserved but you know the flagrant foul maybe but i mean it's definitely an offensive foul yeah and i have to add i just i'm 
kind of in awe that RJ was able to make such a good defensive play because I think we've talked about in multiple episodes that one of RJ's few deficiencies, because RJ is honestly probably the heart and soul of the team with Armando, is his on-ball defense and the tendency to uh, give up drives to the basket. And RJ said, nope, not going past me today, moved his feet got set and just absolutely wore one in the face to secure the win. So again, that just goes back to what we always talk about. RJ is just, uh, he's New York tough. I don't know how else to describe it. I love that dude, heart and soul of the team with Armando. So really happy that he was able to make that play for us. And uh, sounds like based on Hubert's interview today, RJ is going to be okay and progressing well to play in our next couple of games. Yeah. So what do we have to, you know, we've got, how many games left? Ten ACC games. What do we got to do to improve our seeding? We've got we're projected as an eight seed right now. That's what we were last year. Um, what do we need to do to get up to that three or four line? What are we? Are we seven and three in the ACC? Uh, yeah, I believe. So. Yeah, I think we're a must win at Pitt. We're a must win at Duke. Um. We have to beat Clemson there above us and Miami and then beat Virginia. I think the rest, we could take an L, but those, I think, I mean, those are our toughest ones, but, like, you can't really argue. I mean, Miami, UVA, Duke, maybe twice, and Clemson, who's the top of the ACC. I mean, I feel like if we can go, if we can get five or six, or I think that'd be great. Um, I feel, I don't, I, I think it's, we're asking a little bit too much. It's definitely doable to win all of these, but, you know, we're doing Pitt, Duke, Wake, Clemson, Miami, NC State, Notre Dame, Virginia, Florida State, Duke again. So, like, there's three or four good teams in here, maybe even five. You know, we lost to Pitt. Duke's decent. We beat Wake, but this one's at Wake. Um, Clemson's beating everyone. Miami shot 80% from the field in the second half against Florida State the other week. So, I mean, all of these teams are tough. But then again, you know, I, I didn't look and see how many of them are home or away. Um yeah, I mean we've got it. We definitely. See. I was have, actually just going to touch on that. Yeah. Go ahead. I was just going to say we have we have a touch stretch overall coming up, um, and I think the teams that are, are the games that aren't even like quote unquote tough, they're not home games. So we play at Notre Dame, we play at Florida State. Florida State's not great this year, but we generally struggle when we play in at Florida State. Um, Clemson we have at home, which you know I think they've won what one game at Carolina in the last sixty years or so. Mm-hmm. So. Um, overall a tough stretch, but I think we can win seven or hopefully eight of those games. Well, and that's what I was thinking about is if you look at the schedule, we get Pitt at home in a revenge game. We have to go to Duke, always tough to play in Tyler, uh, Hansborough Indoor Stadium. Doesn't matter if Duke's good or not. Uh, we have to go play at Wake. To me, that's a little bit of a trap game. Wake is a decent team. Uh, luckily I grew up in Winston-Salem. That LJVM's not going to be busting out with Wake fans or anything. It's not too bad of a road environment there. Uh, we get Clemson at home. We get Miami at home. We get Virginia at home. So like you guys said, I think we get a, a good slate of home games. But, I mean, at the end of the day, the ACC's tough. you got to take care of business. You, those teams are going to come in, and they're going to want to beat us. Uh, so still got to take care of business. Can't look ahead too much. But let's go ahead and jump into – we play Pitt this week on Wednesday – uh, that precedes our big first game with Duke. First time that the two teams have been unranked playing each other since when? This is a pop quiz for you guys. Just two years ago. Since which 2021. 
Yeah. Did you see it on Twitter? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, first time in a couple years, both teams are unranked. Uh, Purdue and Indiana fans are absolutely salty beyond salty because UNC Duke are getting the uh, ESPN 630 evening slot, and uh, Purdue and Indiana got bumped to ESPN 2. So just a reminder that UNC Duke is the best rivalry in all of college basketball, uh, regardless of what Purdue and Indiana fans think and what they're ranked. Is it still a rivalry anymore, or did, or did we did we end that last year? That's a hard question. That is a loaded question. I don't really know how to answer it. It's a rivalry, but I don't really care about them or what their fans think anymore. Okay, here's how I'd explain it. You guys know like in the past with NC State where you just don't care about them. Like, you physically could not care less. And it was, like, we play them, and in football they're a rival, whatever, but you just don't care about what them or their fans think. Duke has kind of moved into this weird middle purgatory where it's like, I I respect their team, I respect their accomplishments, can't really say the same for State, but I don't really care what their fans think because no matter what happens now, we always beat them in the Final Four and we slam the door in Krzyzewski's face in Hansborough Indoor Stadium, his last ever game there. I, that's just my opinion. I don't know what you guys think. I mean, we can definitely respect the rivalry, right? Like, it's all, we always going to be looking forward to the Duke UNC matchup. It's still a good matchup, regardless. And I, you know, I don't, I don't. You're right, Nathan. I don't feel the same about State. I feel like State's just another, you know, just another game. Um, I don't, I don't see that as big of a rivalry as I do the Duke UNC game. I mean, Duke UNC is like when you think of a rivalry, you think Duke UNC. You definitely don't. You definitely don't. Um, See that the same for State and UNC. I have a funny sidebar real fast. So I actually saw a few tweets about this today. I didn't listen to it. Apparently, Coach K was doing an interview on WRAL today in which he blamed the final four loss on the referees, said he wished that he could have uh, switched a couple of those refs out for different refs. And he said that he blamed the the loss, his last ever home game loss, on uh, basically too much pressure. And so... Here's my question to Coach K. Why was all that pressure there? Let's let's talk about your little retirement tour that was all about the players, except for Joey Baker. Poor Joey Baker. I feel bad for that guy. But I just I thought those comments are hilarious. That the, it was the they refs' fault. They burnt that man's red shirt. They burnt that man's red shirt freshman year because he was getting smoked by Syracuse, and then didn't even let him start on senior night. And didn't let him start on senior night, said it was because he would be back at Duke as a fifth-year senior the following year, then two weeks later told him, nah, bro, you got to transfer. So he, man spent four years at Duke, didn't even get a senior night. Uh, um, so I want to touch on this. So we had this guy, uh, who was the guy that had the career high for Pittsburgh? I think it was Jamarius Burton. He had 31 points. Um, yeah, 14 of 17 shooting. So question, after the defensive showing the other night, is that Leaky's guy to start yeah, the game? He- Hundred percent, yes. You, yeah, yeah. yeah. You yeah. don't, yeah. It's, it's so got to be Leaky's guy. Yeah, you don't want him to repeat. And you know what? What Burton did when he he's got an old man game. He's he's really good at getting to the lane. Yeah. He's really good at finishing um, those twelve to fifteen foot jump shots. So you know what he's going to do. They they didn't beat us at Pittsburgh on three point shots. So you just got to make sure you get a hand in his face. Make it hard for him to make a shot. I agree. I totally agree. I think the Pittsburgh is going to be a good one. I think UNC will be out for revenge on that one. I think Baycott will um pretty much have his way as he has been. Um, other than that, the dude game after that, I would like to see the um. I would like to see the uh, Filipowski Baycott um, battle. I think that'd be a good one too. Um, what do you guys think about that one? 
Uh, I mean, I'm not going to disrespect Filipowski, but Baycott is... If Baycott plays his game against Filipowski, because see, I've watched Filipowski, and here's his thing. He's a good shot blocker. I'll give him that. But if you play physical with him, he he, he doesn't have the the burns from state body type to bang with Baycott. So assuming Baycott doesn't get in foul trouble, play smart, I just cannot see how Filipowski gives him a hard time. I think Baycott does work on him uh, on offense. On defense, I think Nance will guard him most likely, and that uh, Baycott will guard White, I think, as their other big man, uh, because Filipowski has range, and they probably won't want Baycott out on the three-point line. But yeah, on offense, I think if as long as Baycott doesn't get himself in foul trouble, I just cannot imagine that's a tough matchup for him. Yeah, I agree. 100% agree. I think that will be the game plan uh, Huber has. I hope that's the game plan he has because I think that gives us a good chance to win. And Filipowski is their um, most – he's like the most offensive weapon that they have. So if you shut him down, I feel like you shut them down. So I think that on paper we smoke Duke. We'll see what happens at um, Cameron Indoor on Saturday. Uh, can we get the correct name of their stadium, please? Oh, sorry. Hansborough Indoor Stadium. Okay, thank you. Um, all right, guys. Um, I think we can – did y'all want to touch on recruiting? We got some big recruits recently we haven't talked about. Um, and we'll kind of talk about what the rotation looks like potentially next year. I think – so we got Simeon Wiltshire coming in, Zayden High coming in next year. We've got uh, – for the class of 24, which is our biggest class we've ever had uh, as far as rankings go – we got Elliot Cadeau at point guard, James Brown, he's a center, um, Drake Powell is a shooting guard, and Ian Jackson, who just signed a couple weeks ago, is also a guard. Um, we've also our own Trenton Flowers, top four, um, but I think he's a guard as well, so that might be a little too cramped for him to come in. What do you guys think about those guys that are coming in for Hubert for 24? I'll let Nick uh, comment on that, but I also will add Jaron Stevenson right from UNC's backyard. Uh, he is a, yeah, he's a five-star. He's number 10 in the nation, number one in North Carolina. Uh, that's another one that has been a little bit of a prolonged recruitment. Uh, also a little bit weird that he doesn't have a lot of your huge offers for the number 10 player in the country, but a lot of insiders and people that follow Carolina recruiting think that that's a, another one that we may land, which would just, that that like you said, that sends our 24 class to by far the best class we've ever had. But I'll let Nick talk a little bit about what he thinks that class can bring. Um, I think for me, um, I just want to touch on the fact that Hubert is doing a fantastic job recruiting. Um, I don't know what this man's doing, but he is killing it on the recruiting trail. Um, Bradley, you had sent us a message in our group chat about something about who you said, what, Hubert gets these guys to commit because he wants uh, – tell me exactly what you were saying, what you had said that he that you had read. My bad. Um, uh, so I read this on either an article or heard it in another, another podcast, but basically we know the transfer, port, transfer portal is huge right now, right? So – We've gotten Brady Manick in the portal. We've gotten um, Pete Nance in the portal. And we also got um, Justin McCoy in the portal. But two of the three of those guys have come in and made huge contributions to our team. So it's been shown that UNC is bringing these guys in and um, we've been successful with them. So when it comes, and that changes the game of recruiting because once you, you know, propose these guys, hey, you better commit now or, you know, we might come to the portal and get somebody who we know is going to come in and make um, contributions as soon as they get on, on campus. So 
I think when you when you put it like that and when you put it to a high school kid who's a junior or senior trying to figure out where, where he's going to go, that transfer portal limits them limits their options in a way that it didn't previously. Yeah, I think it's I think it's you know it's a pretty good recruiting type because like you know you want these kids to come in and and have their and have their minutes right off the right off the rip and you know posing it as uh, having a guy that's a fifth year senior come in and um, you know saying that he can commit like you know they can commit someone from the portal or that they can get someone you know straight out of high school I feel like you know that prompts these guys to commit a little bit early. Um, which I like because, you know, it gets people in the door. It gets them, you know, into the Carolina way. I just hope that when we have these high recruits, like we've seen, we've seen the big recruiting classes with Kentucky, with Duke, um, you know, these big, big blue blood teams. And I always worry because I feel like the Carolina way is to have, you know, the three to four year players who are combined to the, buy into the Carolina, you know, tradition of staying a couple of years and winning. Like I always said when Roy was here, it's like every three to four years, Roy's going to produce a team that's going to go to the Final Four or maybe win a championship. And, you know, Hubert's done in his first year. I would like to see Hubert do this again this year. And I would like to see UNC break that habit of seeing, you know, I mean, Duke had the top three players in the class when Zion, RJ, and Cam Reddish came in and they made it to the round of 32 and got beat. I think it was South, was it South Carolina they got beat by? I think it was the Elite Eight. Or yeah, they, they, it, it was they the Elite beat. Eight, but it was South Carolina. Yeah. But they got beat. Or they got beat earlier than they wanted to. You know, the only two teams I know of that this worked was Duke twenty fifteen and Kentucky in twenty twelve, and that was Anthony Davis and you know how that how that went in in twenty twelve. So I feel like we can definitely be the be one of the teams to break that mold of like you know the one and dones come in and play for a year, put up good stats, and then leave. I feel like maybe we could get these guys to stay for one to two years and have a good little run and have a good four 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 year trip to the. Final Four maybe gets a couple championships, so that's what I'm looking forward to. Well, and NIL helps with that too. I think that for some of these guys, you get a little NIL money and kind of incentivizes you to stick around if you're maybe a borderline G League player, second round draft pick, that kind of thing. So yeah, I agree with you. It's nice to have players that don't come for the fall semester of classes and then stop going to class come January just because they're leaving after a semester anyways. Yeah, and I, I don't want to be a university known for that. I think the formula to winning a title is a good mix of one-and-dones and experienced players. Um, yeah, so I, I don't want to be a Kentucky or a Duke that just you know recruits one-and-dones and, dones and have a, has a new starting five the next year. Because when you go through Duke's old rosters for like the last 10 years, it's like I forget those guys even played there, and sometimes I forget – and they were in college at all. So I, I love having guys stick around for two or three years and get that experience and buy into the program. I don't know if maybe a couple of these guys might be one and done. I think Elliot Cadeau has expressed that he wants to be one and done, and so is Ian Jackson. But I think I think when, when it comes to recruiting, it's kind of a domino effect for some of these guys because with especially with Elliot Cadeau coming to Carolina, that boy can distribute the ball, and he's a great passer. He's a pass-first guard. So – I think we don't get Ian Jackson without having Elliot Cadeau because he knows once he gets there, Cadeau's going to get him the ball in the spots where he's open and in the spots where he can finish to make shots. So um, I think we have, uh, we definitely have a bright future with with the guys that are coming in uh, next year and in 2024. All right, my dudes. I think that's enough for this evening. Um, everyone, this is Nick, Nate, Nathan Nick 
and Bradley. This was episode seven of Tar Heel State of Mind. We appreciate you hanging out with us for an hour. Go Hills. See you next week.